Today's podcast is brought to you by drinkers like you. To help support the show, visit patreon.com slash haveadrinkshow. Time to take a trip. Away from our normal drinking places, it's time to go east. Not to the moonshine capital of our home or the Isles of Scotland, but all the way to another isle, Japan. Time to talk about its national drink, sake. So say kenpai and have a drink. have a drink the show where you learn along with us about what you drink i'm Brittany lee walker i'm justin frazier i'm christopher walker and i'm casey price hello How's hello you doing casey you're back i am we're no longer find him we're no yeah you had to go find him in the wilds and now you're both in the same place with several bottles of blanton's decorating the background <laughs> and we are no longer using random bottles of bourbon to substitute for Casey. <laughs> yeah, I like that idea. I was okay with this. You could you could actually just throw that in on a normal week. <laughs> so, Casey, uh, enlighten us. Uh, we, we had a brief update uh, last week, and we let everyone know. Uh, but we, we need the official word. Where have you been? What uh, happened? Did anyone die? <laughs> How many casualties uh, on your latest vacation? Yeah, so it seems like I can't go on vacation without something crazy happening. So, um, not to make this about me, but the you know the first time we went on a cruise, uh, we went to the Bahamas, and you know there was hurricanes. That, so we said, no, we're not going during hurricane season. We're going to go this next time during the off hurricane season. And so we went down a few weeks ago and went and took a cruise to the Bahamas and, and enjoyed that time. And on the way back, somebody decided they wanted to jump off the boat. And commit suicide. So that was a fun end to the trip. Yeah. Yeah, sounds like it. Um, yeah. uh, well, at least they waited till the end of, you know, vacation. It was like the last day on the way back. So, I mean, at least they got a good vacation they, out of it. Yeah, they didn't throw off your whole... Uh... Oh, no, not even about me. Just just that they, they enjoyed, I guess, the, the few days, hopefully. I don't. That's true. If you're in that sort of state maybe of they, mind, maybe you so did enjoy it. the reports that we were catching, uh, because you were without internet and we we weren't able to get hold of you one we discovered that more than one ship had this happen yeah it's not as uncommon as you would expect um it's it's pretty uh, so the maid as we were talking or the 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 housekeeper for uh, the steward i guess for the cabins that we were in um 
we were talking to her shortly after. So the captain comes over. Actually, the captain doesn't come over. There's a, a all ship um, announcement, and some of these announcements they happen inside your cabin if they're really important, and some of them happen just in the hallways and public spaces if they're not that important. Um, this one was an in the cabin announcement. So this one could be heard from space. If they were to wake up people that were sleeping off a drunk in the middle of the day, then that's <laughs> that's kind of an important announcement. So they come on and they make this announcement that. Um, they give some sort of of weird phrase. It's like froggy or something. I don't know. There was some some weird phrase that they used. <laughs> froggy went according. <laughs> he did fall off the boat. He did dive. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and so they made this announcement and over the the speakers, and I was like, that doesn't sound right. And they gave like a deck number and everything. And a few minutes later. Um, we were in the cabin and so we were getting ready for something. I can't remember what we had that evening, but we were getting ready for dinner or something. And, and the captain comes over and says, um, I guess those of you on deck have, uh, are, are starting to see we're turning the ship around and, and we could feel the shape was actually, ship was actually vibrating pretty violently because they were turning hard. I was going to say they, they, they turned a 90 degree angle. Yeah. Uh, they have those as so that there's not a rudder. So the ship doesn't necessarily glide around Ooh. its path. It just like pushes to one side and that's how it turns. <laughs> so we were still going one direction with momentum while it was trying to turn around. Um, um, in beam in the chat, Houston, we have a frog in kitchen operation. Duck, duck gander is a go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's about how, how confused it was the message. So he comes back over and says, uh, I, I can, uh, you're probably noticing that we're turning around, you know, going the opposite direction to where we're going. And he comes over and says, uh, one of your fellow passengers has decided to jump overboard. So at that point, they knew it was a jumper and not just uh, somebody fell overboard. And they knew it was a, a young man. Um, at that point, we knew it was 20 to 24 years old. Comes out, he was about 24 years old. Um, and there with his, um, on the same floor, one hallway over from us, which was a little weird. Because oh. our, our uh, maid was, or I don't want to call him maid, the, the, our person was um, talking with her uh, co-workers there that are on that same floor and um, was there with a girlfriend and his parents. So I was thinking, you know, maybe a solo traveler or something, but no, had family there. Oh, wow. um, but, uh, yeah, so turns the ship around. It's us. Um, we're on a, a the anthem of the seas. Uh, and on across from us, the Norwegian gym also turns around. So that whole ship turns around. We circle uh, for three hours. The, the steward said, you know, take about three hours because that's the policy is you, you circle for three hours and look, and then after three hours you get a long way. Um, and so that's the company policy on that, if you wonder how long what how long the, your time's worth. What are the odds while you're searching that they end up, like, churning them up in the... Uh, you know, I'm pretty sure they've got people that are out looking, so you're not running over them directly, but as soon as you get somebody that jumps, they ping it on their GPS, okay. and so they know exactly the point they need to circle. What's probably more likely is that you get, and not to bring it downer, but that, that you get sucked under and, and, and from the very beginning. The, the key factor, though, is that the water temperature is so low that yeah. after about 45 minutes, there's no not really a, a, a whole lot of of reason to be searching still but the national guard was still searching and so it was it was interesting um i hate that uh really hearts go out to to that family for sure but um you know it seems like like these weird things tend to happen on on vacations that i'm a part of (laughs) you know it didn't it didn't necessarily we were just thinking about it the whole rest of the evening and thinking you know what's this family going through that whole evening and so it was it's kind of um, a surreal experience because you 
you think, you know, here I am waking up the next morning and everything's all right, but this family wakes up to go home and their whole lives have changed. So that's kind of the whole feeling that we got. So really thoughts and prayers out to those folks, not to be cliche or anything, but um, yeah, no, this is truly a moment when that is called for because it's something no one can do anything about. Yeah. And that's literally all you can do is say thoughts Mm -hmm. and prayers short of you having been a member of Baywatch and could have (laughs) dove in after him. Yeah. So apparently no, they too deep for Baywatch. They were there were were pretty good accounts that said this person intended and made full full intentions to go overboard. So uh, and they did it from right above the pool deck. I'm I'm just wondering how many kids were there watching. So, oh. oh man. Yeah. Some weird stuff. I don't know. But, said the re- um, reports we saw uh, shortly, I guess after that three hours, they said Coast Guard searched through the night, and by the next morning they yeah. they declared him dead and. Yeah, because they use um, I, don't, I did not know this, but they use um, a a heat seeking or like a heat lamp to, or a heat camera, basically. to try oh, and thermal. Okay. Thermal okay. And so by that time, the, the thermal has worn off. You, you, you've maintained or oh. in that temperature water, temperature. you've reached the temperature of the water. And so um, it does no good after a certain amount of time. Hmm. <laughs> wow. Thermodynamics, not just for beer anymore. Yeah. All right. Um, anyone else? <laughs> Can Anyone have a more positive story? Anyone bring the mood up? I don't. I, I've. Oh, I, I can't bring the mood. We went to Hillbilly Days yesterday. Oh, oh Hillbilly our Days local festival. Yes. Uh, and I learned there's a new reality show filming in our neck of the woods. Yeah, oh, my God. sister showed oh, me things no. about this. Uh, it was on, um, I think, through MTV. Yeah, MTV. Their their sequel to Buck Wild. They're oh, filming in Pike God. County, Kentucky. Yeah, she uh, she said. Oh, I hope this is going to show us in a positive light. And I went, <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, this Justified. The... That was all of us. Justified's going to show Eastern Kentucky in our true. Nope, we're all meth heads and pot dealers. Okay. That's I mean, in is. fairness, <laughs> good percentage. <laughs> that is where the still. most interesting informa- uh, stuff comes from. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the, the show, the original show involved them making a dumpster hot tub. So I can't see that this one is going to do much better. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Ever, uh, anyone who wants to fish this show out and uh, judge us, that is a town. Those are West Virginians in the first one. Well, this new Eastern, one. Eastern Kentuckians. <laughs> this yeah, is next to Kentucky. our hometown. Like, and That's this so unfortunate. Is the town where Casey gets to work. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Yeah. But yeah, that is the right. local festival. And people wonder why I drink. The biggest local festival we attend is called Hillbilly Days. Hmm. But Coke releases a special bottle for it every year, and that is what? the point of pride. I guess. Not for me, but for them. <laughs> and it, can All anyone right. bring the mood up except for Hillbilly Days? Anyone? Have we got announcements, maybe? That might be uh, Announcements should bring well, the mood up. Here's a. We also, first, uh, to start off our announcements, uh, we have an update on the movie draft. Ooh. Welcome to your BT Movie Draft Minute, presented by DiamondClub.tv, for the week of April 16, 2018. I'm your host, Big Voice Jay. I'm just one stomach flew away from my goal weight in 1992. Let's go to the scoreboard. Teams have a drink, the Vod Squad, and Walking Drunkard Tide, still waiting for their first film. 
Team Movie Parties in third place with $39.5 million. Team Game Night with Ready Player One bringing in over $11.5 million this past weekend is in second place with $117 million. And with Truth or Dare, Rampage, and A Quiet Place combined, Team Ritual Misery is in first place with a sizable $168.4 million. That's your Movie Draft Minute for the week of April 16, 2018. All totals are as of 6 p.m. Central, Wednesday the 18th. Get ready. I think we have two movies this weekend. I forgot that Ritual Misery got Rampage. Uh I also keep forgetting Rampage is based on the the video game game Ah. Rampage. Well, and I've heard nothing but good things about the uh, A Quiet Place movie. Yeah. So that was kind of a smart get, actually. We're coming for you, Kent Namus. Just wait. So, yeah, again, I say I our strategy. Only we have a movie that can top a hundred. No, one hundred sixty million. I think we got that. I mean, I think a little movie. That. They're gonna, li- they're, they're gonna cut us the next time they see us. <laughs> a little movie called Super Troopers Two opening yes. this yeah, weekend. That's one hundred sixty-eight million right there. Boom! Get of the draft. Whoever didn't get Super Troopers Two missed out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on that note <laughs> for branding we've got some more announcements uh our next episode is saturday april 28th that's gonna be 9 p.m eastern um that will be covering the new england ipa style Ooh, the newest fad no longer fad official An actual style. style yes um here to stay also uh we'd like to remind everyone that our news show is up Look for Have a Drink News in your podcatcher of choice. And the feed for that is live just before the main show every Saturday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, And a reminder for anyone who wants to support the show, if you are a patron right now or want to become one uh, around as of May 1st, um, we're going to send all our patrons some free fun stickers. Um, So probably it's with some inside jokes and fun stuff like that so yeah uh, we're gonna see what we can get going that way definitely some stickers uh some fun things this is kind of like the first of our patron days so uh, <laughs> the whole day has just been about our patrons over at patreon.com and we don't uh, have hillbilly days we have <laughs> patron, patron days. Patron days. <laughs> so yeah we were playing games and uh discussing the meetup coming so we and were business gonna... planning for the shoots yes uh, for the oh, ladders, yes, the ladders. Uh, sorry, <laughs> the shoots has purchased yeah. the land that the ladders will be purchasing uh, in Roanoke. But no, uh, it will all disappear. <laughs> so uh, w- I think the location has been decided. Asheville, North Carolina, could be the home of uh, Mo- more craft breweries per capita in a city than anywhere else in the country. So we're going to go there uh, around the beginning of next year. Uh, Official dates, we've not nailed down. We're going to come up with a survey and spread them out there for dates for everyone. We know it will be around the beginning of next year. Mm -hmm. And we are going to figure out the breweries. We need your input on that. So go become a patron, and uh, you will get some input on this trip. And we're going to try and make it a big Diamond Club thing as well. Try and get everyone together out in Nashville. It's going to be a good time. Yeah. Yeah, get to meet people. 
And uh, hopefully, I need. I'll be like at least three drinks in, so it'll be like I know them the whole time. <laughs> so no, it's gonna be a good time. Like we've got a, we're gonna be doing all kinds of group tours of breweries, and we just need your input. So go become a patron, and you will get that input, and so we know what breweries we need to book tours at. Hmm. And then uh, another way to voice your opinion, if you a little bit more, and get uh, special access to a. Uh, $5 a month patron only channel in our discord uh we had our hangout today so our first ever of the quarterly calls that we want to do with our five dollar a month patrons so if you want to be part of that team and and get to contribute more we also had a nice uh fun game time playing some jackbox games where bob won after monique was uh the one monique almost took it yeah. dominated the whole game until the very end wasn't, when everyone died and then bob came back from the dead and i was i was lulling her into a false sense of security <laughs> mm-hmm. that's what it was completely yeah i, I want to do that more i yeah. know that that one's really fun that was the we did like the jackbox one. party three Four um, is coming out, like, next week. Yeah, I might get four when it comes out, too. I bet they're going to have it on sale. Either way, uh, that was fun. So um, just something to keep in mind. If you if you want to support the show and, and maybe you want to be part of those kind of get-togethers, $5 a month. We uh, need a longer one next time. Oh, yeah, definitely. We need to yeah. do, like, a game-only Well, stream. Time, time didn't allow so much this time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. All, right. All right. I think we have some news to get to. Do we? Uh so a story we were reporting on uh, last year at some point, and maybe the year before that even. So Budweiser uh, absolved of pay-to-play charge in Massachusetts. This is not what we really wanted to hear. In a well, case, good for them. At least they <laughs> good for their shareholders. Good yeah. for them. In a case closely watched by the U.S. beer industry, Massachusetts alcohol officials have determined that a local beer wholesaler owned by Anheuser-Busch is not liable under the state anti-pay-to-play rules for giving away nearly $1 million in equipment to beer retailers. Tuesday's ruling by the State Alcohol Beverage Control Commission is the latest example of the agency's struggle to effectively enforce its prohibition on pay-to-play arrangements in which brewers and distributors give money or valuable equipment to bars and liquor stores in exchange for dedicated taps or shelf space. Craft brewers have decried the tactic, saying it allows large companies to squeeze out smaller competitors that can't afford such incentives. Uh, Investigators at the ABCC last year charged Anheuser-Busch's wholly-owned distributor subsidiary in Medford, uh... August A. Bush and Company of Massachusetts with providing coolers to liquor stores and elaborate draft towers that quotes towers or taps to bars in 2014 and 2015. All told, the equipment was worth $942,200, they said, and went to 441 retailers. Wow. In exchange, the commission wrote uh, in its ruling, Anheuser manufactured alcohol beverages were required to be stocked in the draft towers and coolers uh, leaving fewer taps and less shelf space available for competitors but the abcc's three commissioners held that anheuser-busch not the bars and liquor stores technically retained ownership of the draft towers and coolers and could have removed them at any time so here's my only and i'm not a lawyer but uh, I'm not a lawyer. 
but yeah, you may want to get that will checked. <laughs> um, so one of the things that really gets me on this is that a piece of equipment usually is considered a piece of the property once it's installed and not easily removable. So if they install a draft tower that's built behind walls or install draft lines that's built behind walls or a tower that's associated with it or something along those lines, and it's not easily removable, then that should technically be part of the building, which is part of the property itself, which means that they couldn't have retained that ownership. Um, I'm sure this got argued back and forth because you don't go toe to toe with Anheuser Busch without having good. Well, never mind. It's the you, state suing them. So yeah, so uh, they they did it with like uh, toothpicks and uh, rubber bands. Yeah, <laughs> and then Anheuser Busch had you know Richie Rich's lawyers. Yeah, yeah. They, they basically yeah. they went in there with a straw guy built on a broomstick <laughs> as their lawyer, going, "I think you should give him the money." <laughs> So, but that's, you know, just as a side note, if, if I were to go and install a dishwasher in my house and I were to leave and try to take that dishwasher with me, the courts would, would say, hey, no, you've got to put that back because that is technically part of the house. What about washer dryer units? Easily removable. Okay. Yeah. It's what's built in oh, versus what's, what yeah. uh, what's kind of just sitting there. Sorry, this is becoming... Uh, uh, just me talking about what I have to do tomorrow. <laughs> so, it, I mean, it is a fairly complicated point, but it is very much on technicalities, this whole thing. Well, I think to some extent that's where they figured this this whole case would be going anyway. Like, it's, a, I don't want to say it's a matter of degrees, but where where the line is going to be drawn for this case, I think, is what they were going to be having to to look into. Uh, I know we didn't want Anheuser Busch to, I guess, necessarily win uh, because I don't know. <laughs> There's just so much weird about this whole thing that they're already allowed to do. I just kind of wanted something to change in it. You know? Yeah, we wanted this to be the smoking gun uh, event. Well, like when we first reported on this story that was pointing out, look, they're doing these like you know backhanded deals that are hurting the craft community. And now it comes down, the court is rolling. No, no, it's fine. Yeah. So they also said Anheuser-Busch, not its ah, distribution (laughs) subsidiary. For some reason, that's a mouthful. Paid for the equipment. The company's Medford distributor merely helped facilitate the deals they rolled. But a person closely familiar with the Anheuser-Busch's operations in Massachusetts said that the parent company and its Medford distributor are effectively one and the same. The person also said that while Anheuser-Busch may have retained ownership of the equipment on paper, it never actually removed coolers or taps from retailers. In 2016, the ABCC exonerated several Boston bars that had allegedly accepted thousands of dollars in payoffs from a craft beer distributor to stock certain beers on a similar, similar technicality. In that case, the commissioners dismissed the charges because the money from the distributor went to separate marketing and management entities controlled by the bar's owners and not the businesses uh, that held the liquor license overseen by the ABCC. So this is coming down to a both sides are kind of guilty of everything in the end, especially in Massachusetts. 
Yeah. Well, both sides are guilty, but Anheuser-Busch gets to get away with it. <laughs> because Ex- what else is new? Yeah. Experts said the Anheuser-Busch decision represents an extraordinary uh, narrow reading of the state alcohol rules. I can't remember the last time I've seen this kind of logic applied to the law, said John Connell, a veteran Massachusetts alcohol lawyer who frequently represents companies before the ABCC. It's a very, very, very strict uh, constructionist interpretation of this regulation. Uh, Connell said the ruling would likely encourage more incentives between alcohol firms and could allow large alcohol companies to control which beers are available to consumers. In fact, he added the ABCC has provided the industry with a roadmap for getting away with pay-to-play in Massachusetts as long as the money or equipment passes through a third party. Neither the retailer receiving it nor the brewer distributor providing it can be held accountable. Yeah, that's that's kind of where I was feeling like most of this was coming from. It's just that it it feels like they've just opened a big loophole. <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, his closing comment here. You might see a lot more of this kind of behavior. <laughs> yeah. That is the warning from the lawyer, and I have to agree. This is really shady stuff, and Massachusetts is maybe going to be made an example of in years to come over this kind of behavior, or it may not, and it may just become a playground for this kind of thing. Yeah, where it's a, it was a criminal proceedings, right? Yes. Not really criminal, but it was a lawsuit done by the state. I, I don't know if you're able to retry that. I don't think you are. I don't think you can. Uh, there, there may be some other, like basically we're in a thing where they have two different cases of legal precedent, and it's just going to be interesting on how it, how it goes on, I guess, going forward. But mm. still, um, I don't know. I, I, sh- I guess I shouldn't be that shocked that that they get. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> let's be serious. <laughs> you come running around with your big bags of money. You get to do what you want. <laughs> Who's shocked? No one, honestly. But <laughs> pretty much, yeah. But what? Uh, right. let, let's go ahead and move on into some Untapped, and here's something that may actually shock us. Get riggedy, riggedy, yeah, all right. Uh, so uh, apparently it is time for, at least this year, for Pittsburgh's Craft Beer Week. Many a craft beer week coming our way. Mm-hmm. It's time once again for Pittsburgh's Craft Beer Week, highlighting Pittsburgh region's craft beer culture. Hashtag PCBW kicks off uh, Friday, April 20th. So actually it's already started. Hmm. Uh, featuring a barrage of great events, including standard tap takeovers, beer dinners, oh, pardon, and meet the brewer events. There's sure to be something up for everyone. Celebrate the gl- glory of Pittsburgh's craft beer scene by enjoying some specialty brewery, uh, brewery beers, and you'll unlock this year's commemorative badge. Check into one hashtag PCBW. It's really hard not to say PCP. <laughs> um, Check into any PCP. <laughs> right where's uh, that check-in tool <laughs> yeah hey uh, we brought it up with uh with greg and i, I said whiskey i want to be able to check into my whiskeys i mean I, I assume it's coming uh anyway if you check in any of those between april 20th and 29th uh then the pittsburgh craft beer week 2018 is yours they have a list of the qualifying beers on the thing uh i don't know of really any of these Right, yeah, very localized. Uh, 
I will say, though, that badge kind of makes me laugh. It's the most utility belt any superhero needs. Yeah. Just a... It's the coolest badge. It's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> also, is that just... Is that? I think it's a bottle cap on there. That or it's a slice <laughs> of ham on his belt. <laughs> Bologna. I want it to be baloney. <clears throat> I was trying to look up where this is exactly. Is this Pennsylvania as well? Uh, it's for Harrisburg Beer Week. I'm like, Harrisburg where? Like I hop HBG. Yeah. It literally I never says Huckabees. a state. Oh, it is. Okay, it's Pennsylvania. Duh. Okay, it is yeah, Pennsylvania there. getting all Sorry. the beer weeks, and here we are sitting. sitting it's, it's Cincinnati's fault. They don't want to jump in. Anyway. Uh, they don't um, want to pay. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. Cheapskates. <laughs> uh, so Harrisburg Beer Week is back and ready to unleash 10 days. That's more than a week, kids. Of craft beer-centric events throughout the greater Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area. Maybe, maybe we'll go up there and party. Yeah, not that far. Ten days of um, it up there. HBG Beer Week kicks off April 20th. Again, already started. Uh, showcasing all things beer at local breweries, restaurants, pubs, and more. Proceed, proceeds from Harrisburg Beer Week. That's really hard to say. Uh, benefit Harrisburg River Rescue. Uh, so be sure to get out and enjoy the fun. Um, the check-in to any beer within a 30-mile radius of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, between 420 and 429 to unlock the badge. Um and the Harrisburg River Rescue is um, basically like a, a tr- an emergency services thing. It's like a training deal, it's like a like firefighters. Swift water, yeah, swift water rescue. So that's cool. Good for them. All right. So another badge is the 2018 Brewery Madness Champion. Madness. Between Ooh. March 15th and April 2nd, we, along with Untapped, celebrated the season of basketball brackets with our own bracket, the Untapped Brewery Madness. We, beers were, or breweries were pitted against each other from around the world, each to see who could get the most check-ins during each round. The championship matchup came down to Stone Beer, Stone Brewing, and Founders Brewing. You got to hear a little bit about that last week, I believe. Now, get the badge to commemorate it all. That's right. You can have the badge for just one check-in to any Founders Beer between April 15th and May 15th, and you earn the Brewery Madness Champion 2018 badge. That's cool. Untapped the badge. Untapped the coloring <laughs> book. Untapped the flamethrower. So I believe, as we've it's discussed, cool uh, founders during this when March Madness occurs has a slight advantage uh, as yeah. to releasing what I believe the four of us will refer to as probably the best beer in the country. Just barely. Just barely. Maybe. Because the April 1st uh, around, and you know, it, it, it could either fall in there perfectly or be right outside of it yeah, yeah which and last year it was right outside of it and that hurt them and they weren't able to win yeah it's it's a good thing uh for founders in the last you know last bit i guess but you know i also left they like beers from around the world so guinness and <laughs> yeah and so, a bunch of Americans. Guinness it's and like, was Omni Pillow in there? So worldwide. Uh, McKellar was in there. Oh, McKellar. Oh, McKellar was. Uh, yeah, okay. I guess that counts. That's, but they both, okay. uh, McKellar lost out first round, and Guinness made it to at least second round and died out quick this year. I feel like well, McKellar's you know, not St. as Patrick's easy to get. Day. You didn't get a lot of, li- last year we saw a lot of lingering St. Patrick's Day check-ins and stuff. Like, Guinness kept going for a couple weeks after. But it just, People bought them at the bar, or they bought the bought a single. Yeah, it promptly died yeah. afterwards. Hmm. All right, uh, and also uh, with Untapped, uh, there were quite a few badges for Waldos on 420. I don't know how many you all got. I got a respective, I think, 
four. <laughs> there were five possible badges, and you could have gotten all five badges if you checked into a draft Waldo's on 420 at 420 tagging a friend. <laughs> I got zero. Yeah. I did not go get Waldo's. I think, I think he's the only one that got one. Oh, of us, anyway. <laughs> uh, I was so going to say, you no, go, you could, you, could go to to you. you could go to Untapped and check it out. And during that time, it might actually, let's see if the page will load. It is still the global trending beer. Number one in the world right now is Waldo's Special Ale. Well, it followed is close, the weekend of 420. We'll follow sure. close <laughs> by Dragons and Yum Yums, which was the official beer of Record Store Day. Oh, yeah, Dogfish Head. From Dogfish Head. And so that one's trailing up number two. And still at number three, you have KBS. Hmm. Which, oddly hmm. enough, on Untapped is listed as Kentucky Breakfast Out, even though we all know it can't legally be called that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know about legal. You know, we'll we'll get into that. Yeah, well, that's, that's a topic for another have day. A, have a law, our new. Uh, yeah. Uh. This week in law, Twill. What is our actual topic for today? Suck it to me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Suck it to me, baby. All right. Yes. No, we're talking about sake today. So if we are okay, what is the actual pronunciation? Sake. 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 I've been sake? saying sake. Is that, it sake that's something or important sake? we should have look, looked up, perhaps. Someone's going to be shouting in their right. car, driving, listening. They'll be like, no, you're saying it all wrong. Here, like, um, let's, let's do a quick check. Yeah, let me... Pronouns. Go, Google Translate. Save us. I got it. Hold on. Sake. Uh, no, that's no. not correct. Google, you suck. Sake? Oh, I bet it has like an accent sake. mark over it. Sake. 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 Yeah. We're going... Uh, uh, this Google a... will typically say sake... Saki or Saki. Saki. Sake. I drink the sake. I drink the sake. So so it's sake is what we're Sake. We we will say sake if if you think that's But I will say sake. Casey will say sake. If you think either is wrong, email us. Let us know. Call us idiots. We just wanna know there's someone out there. Just talk to us. Okay. Anyways, okay. moving on. If we think of the history of sake uh, as a history of Japanese liquor or rice-based liquor, the origins go as far back as ooh, pardon, 2,500 years uh, years ago when the rice growing uh, when rice growing became prevalent in Japan. The oldest written records of Japanese sake are found in third-century Chinese history books. Uh, these state that the Japanese have a taste for sake and are in the habit of gathering to drink sake when mourning the dead. There are several stories about sake, some mythical, in the historical records compiled by the imperial court in the 8th century, in so-called fu- fudaki. How do we say hmm? fudaki. Fudaki. Sure. Uh, which the record, which recorded the history and uh, produce and uh, produce of the province eras uh, areas, yeah, provinces in this era. Uh, there is reference to sake uh, made using mold, uh, providing insights into how sake made with uh, rice and koji uh, was produced in those days. The 10th century legal uh, book entitled Ingashiki uh, records the details of ancient sake-making methods. At that time, sake was produced mainly at the imperial court, either to be drunk by the emperor or for ceremonial use. Uh, I would like to point out uh, that it's I'm sure we'll get into it later, but sake has to be made much like beer, but it doesn't have um, the enzymes to break down like um, 
barley. Mm-hmm. Uh, the barley does, so you have to introduce mold to it hmm. to hey. to do that. Uh, let's see. Establishment of uh, sake brewing technology in the 12th and 15th centuries. Uh, sake came to be brewed at Shinto, shri- Shinto shrines and Buddhist temples. And the techniques for sake, uh, sake brewing uh, in use today were largely developed during this period. This was when brewers started using lactic acid fermentation, making shubo, seed mash, uh, used to grow yeast, relying on lactic acid to inhibit microbial contamination. Then uh, adding koji, water, and steamed uh, steamed rice into mashing stage uh, stages into the shubo. Hitherto, bre- brewers had used uh, polished rice only for koji production, otherwise making the unpolished rice uh, using the unpolished rice to make sake. During this period, however, they started producing moru, sorry, morohaku sake or a sake used uh, made use used uh, made using polished rice both for the koji rice and the steam rice added to the mash and we'll get into a little bit more about why that's important here in a minute uh the diaries of buddhist priests in the 15th and 16th century uh record the use of hairi hairi i guess uh pasteurization with moruhaku sake Along with these advances in brewing technology, innovations in woodworking technology enabled the construction of large 1,500-liter vats and uh, facilitated mass production of sake. This led to full-fledged production by sake, uh, of sake by specialists not affiliated with temples or shrines in the 16th century, known as the uh, Miroshi. Uh, yeah, uh, Miroshi. Miroshi. Yeah, I don't know how to do the phonetic thing, sorry. <laughs> uh, period. In the 17th century, during the early Edo period, the Morohaku produced uh, near Osaka in Itami and Ikeda uh, found its way into the three major cities of Kyoto, Osaka, and Edo, which is now Tokyo, huh. uh, and became especially popular in Edo, where it was called Kudorase. Ku- oh, yeah. Hold on. Kud- Let me stare at it for a second. Kudorazaki. Kurazaki. Sure. Uh, production of Kurazaki reached 38,000 kiloliters at the beginning of the 18th century. This is the equivalent uh, to the annual per capita consumption of 54 liters mm. uh, among the citizens of Edo, including the samurai. Large amounts of sake were uh, packed in casks and transported by sailboat. At the beginning of the 19th century, vessels transporting sake raced each other to see which uh, could enter the Edo port quickest. What is it about drinking and <laughs> racing? It yeah. just, yeah, it goes hand in hand, it seems. It, it doesn't matter what happens, eventually, when you're transporting <laughs> alcohol, someone's going to look at the next guy, ne- the guy next to you in whatever vehicle you're in and go, like, make eye contact and go, I can beat you. And the nod happens. I, yeah. I don't know how you rev engines on a sailboat, but <laughs> I'm assuming they did the equivalent of like, you know, it'd be like a chant or something, you know, <laughs> batting the masts. I don't well, know how that maybe works. it's just the revenuers. It's just universal. Yeah. You, you feel them coming up behind you. Uh, they spanned time periods. Uh, reportedly, they made the journey from uh, from the, the Kobe area to Tokyo in just three or, to four days compared to the usual <laughs> 10 to 30 days in, the, <laughs> in that period. Wow. That's literally like, like no, throw everything off the ship that's not, that's not sake. sake. We have people on board. Throw them over. <laughs> I need speed. Useless. Uh, 
18th century sake uh, production involved using uh, about the same amount of polished rice, 1.3 to 2.3 tons per batch uh, as now. Uh, and the mashing process was practically the same three-stage mashing, mashing process that's currently used. However, the ratio of uh, added water to polished rice was only about only around half. This suggests that the people of that era preferred heavy sweet sake with a, uh, a high viscosity. Uh, the, <laughs> they liked it thick. <laughs> Thicken the sake. Uh, let's see. The records of this period also indicate that wood ash was added to the morami to uh, reduce the acidity before filtering and also refer to the addition of spirits made by distilling sake, sake kasu. Sake kasu. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I looked over to see M. Beam just say thick. 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 <laughs> uh, Anyway, uh, the sakakatsu, which reser- uh, which corresponds to the current practice of adding alcohol. The amount of spirits added was equivalent to around 10% of the weight of rice, resulting in uh, sake with high alcohol content uh, that was resistant to spoiling. Uh, the, at the start of the 19th century, uh, was seen the uh, saw the center of sake production shift from Itami, uh, Ikeda, and nearby areas to Nad- uh, Nadagogo. The go-go refers to the five areas covered by modern-day Nishioma. Yeah. Nishinomiya. 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 Sorry, I just I get to that last M and go, nope, nope, tongue <laughs> won't do that. You've already made an N sound. Uh, Nishinomiya and uh, Kobe cities in the Hyogo pre- uh, prefecture. Uh, the techniques were used for making not, uh, sake. Featured, <laughs> not a sake. Not a sake. No, no, it's not. Uh, <laughs> Nada going to work here d- anymore. That's for certain. Um, anyway, the techniques for making not a sake uh, featured the use of so-called uh, miyamizu water. I think I'm going to assume I said that right and keep moving. Uh, water to uh, obtain from the Nishi, that place in the Hyogo <laughs> Prefecture. Uh, I don't know why my mouth will not make that make those sounds. Concurrently, um, oh, hello, cat. <laughs> they, they found, they the, found sushi. the sushi. <laughs> Look, we're we're going really to theme today. Mm, yeah. Um. Uh, da, 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 sorry, cat distraction. Uh, oh, distraction. I, I understand <laughs> that. Better than castration. <laughs> it, yeah, it's better than castration, but not better than defense castron. Um, uh, anyway, the Mia. Miyamazu, uh, which was discovered around 1850, water wheel uh, milling and the concentration of sake uh, brewing in the colder part of the year. Uh, Miyam, uh, Miyamazu. Yeah. Nope, probably not right. Miyamitsu? Uh, contains, contains large amounts of phosphates and potassiums, which promote the proliferation of uh, koji fungi and yeast, strengthening the memory fermentation. The shifts from foot tree... Uh, Treadles to water wheels for rice milling was not uh, not only increased productivity, but boosted the quality uh, by increasing the level of milling, uh, i.e., lowering the semi bow. Semi boy. Semi boy. Semi boy. At the same time, the concentration of sake production in the winter, when there was less risk of bacterial contamination, facilitated the staple production of high quality sake. Mashing recipes came to resemble those used in modern day brewing and Nada flourished as a center for Japanese brewing, a status it retains to this day. Whew. <laughs> <laughs> My tongue. 
So you might as well go ahead and uh, queue up that uh, Google Translate. <clears throat> so, from around the middle of the 19th century, the arrival in Japan of European scholars heralded the start of scientific research on sake. The German Oskar Koschelt, uh, who landed you weren't in expecting German in this. Yeah, let, let's pepper some German in there. Here we go. Uh, who landed in Japan in 1868. And the Briton uh, Robert William Atkinson wrote reports expressing amazement at the fact that pasteurization had been practiced by sake brewers in Japan since early times, using techniques similar to Pasteur's low-temperature pasteurization. In 1904, the National Institute, uh, now the National Research Institute of Brewing, was established and made important uh, and made an important contribution to the development of sake brewing in subsequent years. Notably, the invention of the 1909 Yama Yamahamito, an improved version. Yamahaimoto. Yamahaimoto, an improved version of the Kimoto style, and. Uh, hold on. Soko Jumoto, which utilizes lactic acid, uh, contributed to the stabilization and streamlining of sake production. With the result of sake Jumoto is now the most widely used method of producing shubo. Uh, shubo of the four brews. <laughs> quality appraisal programs were initiated uh, with the aim of raising the level of brewing technology in 1911. Uh, the first national competition, now Zinoko or Zenkoko, Shinshu Kai National New Sake Awards, was held and instant direct all complaints at the show. Yeah, we're sorry. <laughs> an institution. <laughs> he, listen, you know what I, you got into. <laughs> you knew what was happening when you tuned into this. You tuned into this specifically so we would make make mistakes you, you, we are you, trying to get okay at this you tuned in going okay they have enough trouble with uh german and belgian and spanish let's let's hear let's, them with japanese let's give them a language they have no antecedents for <laughs> just... yeah okay an institution that continues to this day Subsequent developments affecting brewing technology included breakthroughs in understanding the science of fermentation the scientific use of microorganisms, uh, the advent of power-driven rice milling machines, a shift from wooden vats. I, I, I read that as power-driven mice milling <laughs> machine, like if, the mice with the power. If only. All right. Uh, a shift from wooden vats to enamel tanks and the bottling of sake for shipment. Uh, the period during World War II and the immediate post-war period saw bold changes in production methods, such as uh, practice of adding alcohol to sake. So, wait. Bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off. I believe it has paid off for them. So, are you, are you meaning to tell me that before the 19... Uh, what is this? Before World War II, so pre-40s, it was there was no alcohol added? No, I think they just added more. Just, yeah. Okay, we, we ramped so, it up at this point. We so decided, the percentages. We doubled yeah. that IPA. Well, think of it this way. Alcohol that's made from well, – we'll get into it a little bit more, but it's not yeah, just yeah. ramping up the alcohol amount. It's adding alcohol back while still watering it down to make it a little less flavorful, more mm -hmm. like the Bud Light effect. Oh, okay. All right. 
So a wave of modernization in production processes in the 1960s and the introduction of machinery resulted in further streamlining. More recent trends uh, affecting sake include the notion of local production for local consumption as regional areas take another look at the skills and assets they have to offer, leading to the development of new varieties of sake rice and unique types of sake yeast used in fermentation. Rice has always been a staple part of the Japanese diet up until roughly 50 years ago. Rice was in short supply, with production volumes unable to meet domestic demand. Thus, the rice available for sake brewing was understandably limited, and brewing itself was confined to the winter months when lower temperatures and cleaner winter air provided the best conditions for brewing and storage. Uh, natural refrigeration helped keep sake fresh for consumption months after it was brewed. Such conditions uh, made large-scale brewing unfeasible until recent times and resulted in regional sake brands that closely matched the local climate, cuisine, tastes, and local population. Uh, these fairly distinct regional styles can still be identified today. That actually encourages me to go out, I want to go to a, a bar that specializes in sakes yeah. and get some regional styles and pit them, you know, get basically a flight and do them all back to back just to see what these regions are going to be doing. So uh, let's move into the production methods. Uh, sake starts with the key ingredient. Can you tell me what that is? <laughs> uh, waiting, uh, waiting for the door apple. of the explorer. Lead. Very small rocks. <laughs> Rice! That's right! Rice! <laughs> the rice chosen for sake production isn't your standard table rice. It is a bit larger, with changes, uh, which changes the proportions of the components that make up the rice kernel. Rice begins its life as a natural brown rice kernel, no matter what it is destined to become. Table rice is probably milled somewhere around 10%, meaning it is a 90% milled rice. This removes the outside of the rice kernel. The hull or husk and the outside of the kernel, which is called the bran. This is where the oils and fatty acids of the rice plant are held. The process creates white rice instead of the natural brown rice. The milling process is also called polishing since the process removes layers from the outside instead of breaking the kernel apart. The kernel to which the degree to which the kernel is milled determines how high quality sake it will make with higher polishing rates, usually making higher quality sakes. Hmm. That's the today I learned bit. I've got to say on this one. That's a, a process the rice. It makes a higher quality sake. Okay. Some rice has around a 30% mill rate, meaning almost three quarters of the kernel has been polished away. So the reason the higher polishing rates make dif uh, make differently flavored sake is because of the makeup of the grain itself. Rice has multiple layers, and the polishing process changes the ratio of the different layers in the grain. The outside of the kernel is the chaff, uh, beneath which is the bran, and then the bran residue, um, the grain. And then the bran residue, Stop. sorry. Yeah. yeah, I read that funny. Uh, anyway, <laughs> from there, the polishing process removes large portions of the core. Some of the oils and strong flavors can penetrate deeper into the rice kernel, and so the more polish you give the rice to a point the more of the pure starch is exposed. One important factor to note is that even the master sake brewers called... Doji. 
Toji. So this is Toji. Okay. The O had a, an accent mark. And I was like, ah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, point out that higher milled sake doesn't necessarily mean better sake. The difference is in how the flavor presents in, um, in the final product. Less milled rice usually produces sake that is rich and deep in flavor, while higher polished rice producers uh, produces a more clean and aromatic style. The difference could almost be compared to an ale versus a lager. So that's a nice comparison. Um, mm-hmm. Sake rice can be looked at similarly to grape varieties, with each having a slightly diff- or a slight different way um, the way the, the, the flavors. Um, so there are nine basic types of rice uh, used to make Japanese sake. So you've got uh, Yamada Nishiki, Omashi, uh, Miyama Nishiki. Uh, I am looking this next one up. <laughs> <laughs> Gohaku Mangoku. Sure. That, that probably is correct, actually. Gohaku Mangoku. Yeah, that's about right. Okay. Uh, Oseto Hata Nishiki, uh, Tamazake. Oh, what? Kame no O? Is that how you say that? Yeah. Okay. And uh, Dua San San? Anyway. Pretty long ways from Pilsner. Yeah. Um, so, one of the most important advances was the improvement in rice polishing equipment. Originally, rice was stomped on in a vat to remove the husks. Uh, later, water wheels and grinding stones were used. Today, there are great computer-controlled machines that will polish off the specified percentage of the outside of the grains and do it in a specified amount of time, uh, with longer being better. This minimized damage from friction, heat, and cracked grains. After the rice is milled, there is still a white powder called nuka that is left on the rice. The powder must be washed away as to not spoil the intended final flavor. As a side note, this stage tends to not be completed immediately after the milling, as the polishing process creates heat that dries out the kernel. The rice is left to slowly regain some of the moisture over a few days in order to prevent cracking the kernel, by soaking up a lot of water at once. Once the rice has been washed thoroughly, it's soaked until it reaches a specific water content special to each rice type and producer. The more the rice has been polished, the faster the rice soaks up water. Sometimes this can be as short as a minute or as long as overnight. Okay, real quick. (laughs) Got to interrupt because M-Beam just joined the Discord and put this amazing picture of the two of them doing the exact same head scratch with the exact same arm making the exact same facial expression. <laughs> we fantastic. spent a lot of time together. That's amazing. <sighs> okay. That nice. needs to be like the, the, th- the thumbnail for this. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, so... <laughs> So, okay, next, the rice is steamed. Uh, This is a different form of how we make, like, rice at home. Uh, The rice is added to a steaming vat called a koshiki and allows the rice to have a firmer consistency and slightly harder outside surface with a softer center. At this point, some of the rice will go forward to be placed into the brewing process, but a portion, around 15%, will be removed and used to make the koji. My question is, when do we add the rice (laughs) aroni? When it comes from San Francisco. It was a yeah, San Francisco treat. That's uh, San Francisco's uh, sake. Saccaroni. California sakis. Saccaroni. San Francisco. Abomination. 
Um, so sake is different in the way it was created. Um, there, uh, there are no enzymes in sake rice like there are in barley in order to transform the starch into fermentable sugars. This is where the koji mold comes into play. Uh, this is a fine dark powder that's sprinkled onto the steamed rice and allowed uh, to grow in the high humidity and high heat rooms for 36 to 45 hours. See, every time I think of Koji, I think of advice given to us at a conference about uh, brewing sake. Mm -hmm. And they talk about, like, look, if you're going to make sake, it's like brewing, just doing the same thing, like, seven times. Mm. But they're like, you need to make Koji, so you just buy the spores, throw it into the rice, just let it go bad, and then you have (laughs) Koji for the rest of your life. Yeah. so weird. It, it It sounds like the craziest process. Uh, the final product looks like rice with a slight frosting on them and smells faintly sweet and of chestnuts. Which I suppose is better than actual mold smell. Um, most controversially, however, is the koji making equipment. The slightest differences in koji can affect the flavor of the final product. Traditionally, koji is all made by hand in wood-paneled rooms kept warm and humid. As this is, as this is um, the labor-intensive step... <laughs> Many changes have come about, and a lot of them are rejected later. It's interesting to note that almost all super premium sake is made using handmade koji. Well, I mean, they've got to charge for all that hand labor they're doing. Yeah, basically. Uh, As this mold converts the starch into rice, uh, in the rice, into sugars, uh, yeast is added with water to create a slurry, or yeast starter, called a shubo or moto. Uh, the starter has everything needed to make sake, and this time allows the yeast cells to grow to higher concentrations. This whole process just sounds, like, complex, but interesting. Uh, it's it's not simple. It's, yeah. not, it's not easy. But... It's kind of odd that this came about so early. Uh, you know, you have wine production that's fairly, it just does it. But this is a little bit different. Oh, yeah. It had to have like somehow accidentally did part of it, and then it's just <laughs> it's it's centuries of refining. You know, we got mold in this, and then we let it set out, and it bubbled around for a little while. But it tastes pretty good forty five days down the road. So this, it, it's yeah, like this cheese. Is where we get into like how I always joke. Sometimes science just does weird stuff. It's all on a dare. Yeah. So yeah. no laziness. I think it came from laziness. As someone got halfway through the process, forgot about it, and then went back and said, "Eh, we'll try it." <laughs> You know what's probably now that I'm thinking about what's probably more more appropriate starvation. This all comes down to starvation. <laughs> Somebody that really has nothing thirsty. else to eat. That'll do it. Yeah, That'll sure. do it. So the mixture of this uh, sake, um, or sorry, the mixture of the the koji rice, the um, yeast, and the water are all mixed together. It sits around for a little while, and then this mixture is added back to a larger mash tank. And it's a really large mash tank, so it's dumped in the bottom. And this is called a moromi. Now, more koji rice and freshly steamed rice are combined together with water over four days in three successful stages. So you keep adding more. You add um, every day, you add a little bit more. You add, you double the volume every day. And so as you double the volume, you double the size of the mash each time. So it eventually fills up this entire mash ton. You start with a mash about this big, and then... End up with one the size of size of a couch. Yes. 
So um, the last stage can take about 18 to 32 days, depending on the temperature and other factors. The flavor profile of sake is highly influenced by this stage. This would be something similar to how a beer would be mashed and fermented, but it takes place at the exact same time. The yeast used to brew sake is Saccharomyces cerevisiae, the same species that is used to brew beer, although specific types of this this species of yeast are used to brew sake and to get the desirable flavors, each sake house usually having their own specific yeast that they use. After the fermentation is complete, most of the starch has been converted into sugar by the koji and then converted into alcohol by the yeast. This liquid now needs to be saturated, or sorry, separated from the solids. Traditionally, saturating. It's already saturated, I guess. Traditionally, canvas bags were stuffed with the mixture and then hung and squeezed to force out the liquid. Some sake makers still use this method, but mass, pr mass production today uses machinery to press out the liquid from the unfermented solids using large presses. The runoff is still cloudy with some particulate left in solution. Although some sake producers make cloudy sake with this, most will filter the solution to make it clear. The sake sits for a few days to let the particles settle out, and the sake is usually then charcoal filtered. The brewery makes the decision on how much of a filter to use and by what style they want to make when it comes to that sake flavor. Most of sake is pasteurized to prevent contamination. This is one of, of course, of a newer addition that helps to maintain the quality of sake through shipping. After pasteurization, the sake is aged about six months, and this helps to smooth and round out the flavors that are in the sake. The drink can be high in alcohol at this point, so some additional water is used to, to water the mixture down from about 20% alcohol to somewhere near 16% alcohol. The sake producer may also add additional water to help reduce the stronger flavors poor quality rice may have produced. Then they may add additional distilled liquor back to it to increase the alcohol content back to where it should be. The sake is then bottled and could be pasteurized again. So there you go. That's why you get some liquor added back to it. It's not because the rice isn't producing enough liquor or enough alcohol. It's because the flavor of that, if it's got a whole lot of kernel still left on there, it may have a really dark and, and kind of – I don't want to say dank because it's not dank, but a darker – uh, flavor and they want to make it a little bit lighter flavored so they'll reduce it down to maybe maybe somewhere around 12 percent alcohol and then by water uh and then they'll add liquor back to increase it back up to 16 percent or so hmm. so styles of sake and their classifications are really important when you're looking at a bottle and you can see the difference when you're looking at pricing uh, when we're looking at sake, there's a kind of a cross-reference to determine what the words on the bottle actually mean. The first word you're likely to see on many bottles is junmai. Literally, it translates to pure or pure rice, but in practice, it means the contents of the bottle are only rice, water, koji mold, and yeast. There's no added distilled liquors in junmai sake. If you do not see junmai on the label, there is a very, very good chance it has added distilled alcohols to help lighten the flavor while keeping the alcohol content at an appropriate range. So once you split the sake into junmai and non-junmai versions, you'll then have different grades within that, and those are pertaining to the level of mill that each grain of rice is seen. So the first level has no regulation on it whatsoever, on the mill level especially, and generally it's called a table sake. Um, it's Futsu, F-U-T-S-U. It uses automated brewing processes and high amounts of distilled alcohol, and this category makes up about 75% of the whole sake market. 
So if you're going out there and just buying a cheap sake, like we had a little bit earlier, <laughs> that is probably going to be a uh, non-Jumai Futsu version. Hmm. What this is, I'm assuming. Yeah, that's what that was. Um, we tried this one a little bit earlier. This is the Aziki Sake Dry. Um, it's 14.5% alcohol by volume. I'm going to give you a couple more numbers here that you probably won't know uh, right offhand, but this is a 70% polish, which means that 70% of the rice kernel is left behind, and it's a plus 8, 1.3. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the, what the plus 8 and the 1.3 mean here in just a minute. We can also say it was bad. It was bad. We dumped it. Uh, it had a very heavy flavor to it. So next on the list is Hon Jozo sake, which has some regulation on the polish of the rice. At least 30% of the rice must be milled away, leaving 70% of the kernels to be brewed with. This is considered a premium sake and makes up about 14% of the market. At this point, we should note there is a slight deviation from the traditional naming traditions. If you were to get a bottle of Hanjozu that was made in the Junmai style, so without any of the added liquor, it would probably just be labeled Junmai. Or in some special circumstances where it follows a few other regulations, it would be the Tokubetsu Junmai. So you probably won't see a Junmai Hanjozu sake. Um, they just want to kind of leave that word off. Next is the Ginjo. Um, this is the start of the super premium varieties, where 40% or more of the rice has been milled away, leaving only about 60% of the kernel behind. You'll start to see an increased price of this range, as well as more delicate flavors here. That's what we're sipping on right now, is the uh, Suzaku Junmai Ginju from Gekkenen, G-E-K-K-E-I-K-A-N. It's one of the... Gekkenen. Gekkenen, one of the higher... Uh, one of the, the, the sake producers that you'll be able to find more, more rel reliably in most uh, liquor stores. Maybe not that variety exactly, but there's a cheaper one out there. Um, lastly is the highest price variety, the Daiginjo. Um, for these varieties, they use rice that has been mill milled down to at least 50%. Now, you don't see a whole lot of brewers going um, lower than 50%, and that's because after about 50% milled, you don't get any additional benefit. You just get loss. And so they'll probably go down to that point, and, and that's enough where that's about the best quality flavor you're going to get. Um, for each bottle, you could see two things, like we were talking about a little bit earlier. First, you'll see Junmai, or you won't see Junmai, which lets you know if it has any added alcohols. And then second, you'll see the level of the mill. So it would say maybe Junmai Ginjo or Junmai Da Ginjo. So those two things are two separate categorizations. Whenever I first started into sake, everybody said, oh, you want Junmai sake. That's the best. That's the highest quality. And I was thinking that it was a, a level, not that it was two different things that you combine together to get mm. these, these, okay. the, the classification. So Junmai Dajingo is the, the nice. best out of all these that you can get, or at least the most expensive usually. Um, the two, if you do a Junmai good, Ginjo and a Junmai Dai Ginjo, those two all together make up only about 2.6 of all the sake produced in Japan. Oh, really? So it's fairly uncommon. I mean, it's fairly, fairly small production when you're looking at the highest qualities. All right. So we're looking at like the, the, the high end. Yep. This is the cream of the crop as, as it is and more handmade production. Apparently, we were able to pick it pretty well on this end then. Yeah. Um, whenever you're looking at these, you're looking at for a small personal size bottle of, uh, what, what are these? Probably 
300 milliliters, um, you're looking at somewhere between 15 and $25 probably for some of these, uh, in, in the personal size. So what you would normally get as a, like a split bottle of champagne size. Hmm. Um, in addition to the style of sake, you may see some additional data. And those are the numbers that we were talking about a little bit earlier. This is the sake meter value. There are two parts to this chart and they involve the sweetness and the acidity. The sweet dry value centers on zero and goes from plus 15 to negative 15 with a positive number, meaning that it is more dry. The acidity ranges from one to two with one being more light in flavor and two being more rich in flavor. Now, I say these as our basic ranges. This is what is traditionally used in most sakes, but there are some sakes that are so extreme at either end of the spectrum, they will have larger numbers than what's on the scale. So numbers on the bottle will be able to kind of help you make a decision when you're picking up your sake. The sake that we've got right now is a plus three, meaning it's a little bit on the drier side. It's not sweet at all. Um, one of the sakes that we had earlier was the Hanawake. It is a very sweet sake, and it was negative 60 on the scale, hmm. which is far off from that negative 15. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was saying, like, I knew they were different. Yeah. But... Yeah, it probably had actually some added sugars put back in there to make it even further than the scale. Um, the dry sake that we had earlier was a plus 8, so that was a little too dry for us, but it had a 1.3 on the acidity scale. Um, these are, uh, plus three and I didn't see on the acidity scale for what we're looking at right now. Um, so if you're interested in sake and you want to learn more, um, you can actually become a certified sake, uh, advisor. So the sake school of America offers courses and exams. The introductory level is the certified sake advisor. Then you go into sake sommelier. And then the Wine and Spirits Education Trust actually has a level one and a level three award in sake that you can become certified in, in as a sake sommelier and as a sake um, advisor. I really wish we had more words than just sommelier. I know. No, it's like yeah. the thing for everything. But that's... Like beer's got uh, uh, Cicerone. So, oh, yeah. you know, would like something for whiskey especially. Yeah. Um, the, so the only thing I... The, first of all, Casey did an amazing job getting all this stuff put together. Um Literally the only thing I was, because I was just wondering, like, how long does this stuff keep? Uh, apparently, once it's been opened, you can only keep, you need to put sake in the fridge, and it, it's only good for, like, up to a month. Good to know. Yeah, I would give it even less. Well, so for me, I would say sake starts changing pretty quickly. Um, and if you open a bottle, treat it like wine. Yeah. And, and so it, you probably wouldn't want to keep a bottle of wine because it's going to change over a, a week even. But I wouldn't say I wouldn't be opposed to cooking with wine a month down the road. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. Well, and that's that would be generally how I would think of wine too. Yeah. If it's older wine, I don't mind you yeah. know, using it for cooking oh, stuff. Yeah. Uh, I will say these have changed somewhat, even in the amount of time that exactly. we've had them out. Yeah. So uh, the one that I, so we're not necessarily doing a, a full sake tasting for everybody, but the. Um, the bottles that we've got here, we started out with the Ozaki Saki Dry. We went with the Oziki um, Hanawaka. As I said, do you want to wait until what ahead. we're drinking? Well, <laughs> we, we've got one to finish up with what we're drinking here. Okay, okay. All right. So we've got one final one I won't go to just yet. Um, and then, so those two were very different, and they were California producers. Hmm. So you got to kind of look, is this a Japanese product or is it a California product? Because there's a lot of California sake out there. Interesting. Um, then we went to... A true Japanese Junmai Ginjo, which is a premium sake from Japan, and the the difference in flavor is really stark. Yeah, 
and this this has a lot of honey notes to it that you wouldn't expect um, out of out of a rice flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's weird because every time I drink sake, I think it's going to taste different. Uh, like I'm expecting it. I don't know it it it's watery if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like it's more watery than most of the other things that we drink, which are like very heavy on the flavor stuff. That it it always is a much more lighter, delicate thing to like try to. Yeah, it definitely out. doesn't have the consistency of like a whiskey or something else that you're just like, oh, I'm it, or even a wine. It doesn't it doesn't pour like some thick viscous solution. Yeah. Speaking of thick viscous solutions, what has Amos been drinking, Chris? Uh, damn it. <laughs> Well, here, we while, gotta... while you're pulling that up, hold on. While you're oh. pulling that up, I do want to say one thing that we didn't touch on was temperature, serving temperature. Oh, right. And I that is something that that's very important with sake. So most premium sakes, you're going to want to drink them cold. Um, it doesn't mean that you always drink hot sake or drink all the hot sake that you're having isn't um, very high quality. It's just most premium sakes, it's, it's kind of a room temperature to cool. But each sake is going to have a certain temperature that that producer kind of suggests that you drink that one at. And it's probably best. You're going to bring out more nuance and more flavors um, with some of the hotter sakes than you are with some of the cooler cooler sakes. Um, But each one, check and see on their website because they're probably going to tell you exactly where it lies in the sweetness, where it lies in the acidity, and what temperature you should probably drink it at. The websites are really the place to go. Probably explains why... I'm not a huge fan of the one I'm having. is because I'm having it at room temperature. Oh. Uh, All right. Might be. We'll find out. Ugh. It's like a party in my mouth and everyone's throwing up. So it's quite the opposite. So this is actually from a few weeks ago. From Amos. So what the hell has Amos been drinking? I need you all to answer this. So from Amos's description, pours out like the devil's blood, gives head like a teenage wet dream, Taste wow. of rich chocolate and finishes smooth. Because they can't all be bad. I mean, come on. He, he, Sometimes a, he's he's gonna find something he likes. A blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. Uh, what do we think? Um, there's there's a there's an Alaskan porter, right? <laughs> well, yeah. The Alaskan smoked the smoked porter. That's what I was thinking of. I couldn't remember the exact name of it, and so I was like, "I'm afraid to say because I'm going to get it wrong, and I don't have it in front of me." Um, I don't think that pours very thick, though. Um, I don't know. Casey guesses. No clue. Um, yeah, I. I imagine something barrel aged. I scrolled down on my screen so you couldn't look over and cheat. I couldn't see your screen anyway, you know that. Then you'd just see his check-in to Smirnoff Ice screwdriver. That is not what this is. Oh, oh I, was I was like, like what? The devil's blood. I was like, what What did he do so, to Smirnoff? The hint I could have given that would have given it away too easily is this is the beer that killed our first mixer. I have oh, no I have idea. no clue. I wasn't. You no. were there, Casey. You yeah, watched is... Brittany pour this over the first mixer, thusly killing oh. channels one and two. Oh, oh, that that I thought you meant like an event mixer. I know that's what I thought too. <laughs> I was like, what? When did we have a mixer? Who says that? I anymore? don't remember. Uh, this was is it a prairie bomb. No, this is the double chocolate stout from Rogue. 
Oh, an absolutely okay. fantastic beer. Have to get it if you ever find it. Uh, it's in Bombers only, I believe. Giant, yeah, I think so. Giant Red Bomber. You cannot miss it on the shelf. It is exquisite. It is amazing. If you see it, grab it. <laughs> so there, yeah. Uh, Amos doesn't drink only terrible things. He finds some good ones. So we had to we had to report that back to you all. So uh, I believe we're gonna move into what we're drinking slash slash eating. <laughs> yeah, a little different today. Drink with me, friend. Yeah. So uh, speaking of eating i guess uh so because uh we're still waiting on some things um (laughs) i have not had sake um but although i did get to smell the one that chris is drinking i can i can hold what you're weird you've been eating but yeah well i've got the box here too so like i don't know if you can see very well but so i got uh at, at least in the spirit of the episode um a japanese ice cream called moshi and I got uh, the strawberry flavor. It is an ice cream wrapped in a sweet rice dough. I'm trying to cut one in half here. Yeah, you actually, like, you can't eat them when it's too cold because no, it's hard it, to cut through. It's hard to cut through and it hurts the hell out of your teeth. Oh, <laughs> yeah, my God. super cold. Um, but they're, I don't know, they're adorable. They're little, like, just contained ice cream things. The dough is kind of strange because you're not used to, like, I don't know, chewy things with ice cream. Here's um, one that I've butchered with a spoon. Yeah. But you can kind of see the layers and the ice cream inside. The ice cream <laughs> see, inside just, surrounded I, by the rice dough. Yeah. I see I was just watching you guys try to like cut one in half over there and yeah. all I can see is like, you know, Chris's arms go under and I'm just like, oh, he's serving her sake like in our picture over here. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah it's it's really tasty though. Like it's just it's good ice cream. Um, the dough part's weird, but at the same time, tastes really good. It has the consistency of like um, if you've had like uh, was it like marzipan? Mm-hmm. Oh okay. Um, I was gonna say, how close is it to cookie dough ice cream? It, yeah, no, <laughs> not not exactly the same thing. But they did have a lot of other interesting flavors um, where, where we got this, and now I'm really interested to try them. Like they had mango, they had um, cookies green, and cream, green tea, cookies and cream. They had uh, See, coffee. Chris sold me. Chris knew what I wanted. Yeah. Then they had a regular chocolate, of course. Um, and I gotta say, it does go great with sake. <laughs> surprising. Um, the other thing is, like, we noticed, because we were at uh, International Store, uh, Jungle Gyms, up here, and... Uh, Rated the number one <laughs> beer-selling grocery store in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, lychee is a popular flavor in Japanese stuff. Like, they had mm-hmm. um, lychee moshi, they had lychee sodas, They ha- like, it was everywhere. So I'm kind of interested to try that at some point, too. Okay, as I chew up my uh, mochi. So I am drinking, I guess. Uh, we didn't know. So this whole thing started. Casey sent us a picture of, he was like, so I just bought, like, every every sake I could find at the store. I'm like, oh. He sent us a picture of, like, four he had purchased. Everyone that came in, like, personal size bottles so we could taste around. <laughs> yeah, so we figured, oh, he got uh, all those. I was like, surely our store will have one of those. No. They had like four hundred <laughs> other sakes, and we're like Jesus. <laughs> so we couldn't find any of those bottles, and when it came to that, we decided to purchase the way that we would purchase wine, based solely on the label. <laughs> but that, well, not solely, on and the, the label. name helped too. No, we looked. Uh, they had a little style guide, 
And so we followed the style guide. We're like, oh, well, this one's kind of like the medium sweet and, you know, the upper end of things. And I picked one from that. It was about that 20 was, bucks, too. So. No, it was like 30-something. No, that, that, one, that one was no, 20. $18.99. This yeah. one was the, like a mid-tier price, but I ended up going yep. with Star-Filled Sky from, uh, I, I believe the distiller would be Mentensai? Mentensai? No idea. And, and not real sure. You can see the bottle here, Starfield Sky, and it's just like some uh, cave uh, cave paintings of uh, constellations on the bottle. It's really cool. This is a Jumai Ginjo, a Japanese oh. sake. And so this one is an actually imported one. So it's coming in at about fifteen point five percent, and the distiller's description. Aged in a tank for three years, this umami-rich sake finishes dry and clean from precise fermentation and water minerality. The unusual juxtaposition makes it stand out as a savory sake with, uh, that will not weigh you down. Uh, Starfield Sky is brewed in Japan's least populated uh, prefecture. Yeah, uh, where there is an abundance of natural elements available, this isolation leads to nights with complete darkness, where the sky or where the stars are in full view. Hmm. I imagine for them that is hard to come across. Well, um, <laughs> well, I mean, if you're in the least populated prefecture, yeah. <laughs> this, uh, I don't know how this is going to stand up against others uh, tasting this one alone. I am not a fan of sake. This is the first sake I've ever had, and I've had it at room temperature. So after hearing maybe it maybe chilled, I would appreciate it more. I will stick it in the fridge. Yeah, maybe and you try it tomorrow. Or try some tomorrow after it is chilled uh, at room temperature. I am not caring for sake. Let's look and see what your they what they suggest. So, um. Oh. does say to, to do it with some ginger pork stir fry, which yes. doesn't that sound good? <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. So it's saying here, this is a plus three on the sweetness index or actually plus three to the dry side mm-hmm. with a 1.4 acidity. So it's, it's going to be a little bit on the um, brighter side with a little bit of dryness, not a whole lot of sweetness. It's not saying here whether you should do it, chill oh excuse me whether you should do it chilled or as um a room temperature sake but i'm going to guess being a super premium yeah probably be better chilled um one of the key factors to that is is there's a lot of flavors that they want to kind of isolate out and not let you not let you taste when it's chilled so it kind of gives a little bit better flavor a little bit less dark notes um interesting though uh and you got a a, a Junmai Ginjo, which is yes. that mm-hmm. second to the highest level um, of the the polish on there with yeah. no added fillers, basically. Unknowingly, we got a Unknowingly, good one. <laughs> by a random pick, as I was like, well, the anthropologist in me can't pass up the uh, like cave painting <laughs> label. And then I'm looking at it, I was like, well, you know, that seems to be the, according to the style guideline, something more along the lines of something I would enjoy. And then we looked for a mid-tier priced one because I wasn't really really willing to shoot the moon for one of these. <laughs> this uh, this site is interesting. The Vine Connections. Um, is, I'm assuming that's what you're looking at, Casey. Yeah. Um, yeah. This has like... That's the importer. Also, uh, the also, the other suggestion on the food pairing is goat cheese with a honey drizzle. And I'm like, yep, that's fine. 
Yeah. I just want that food. So uh, that's one of the things that I found with most of these these super premium sakes is they've had a little bit of a honey note to it, especially the Ginjo. They've had a, a honey note that's already in the aroma, and that it struck me how, how crazy that was. Mm. And it's cool that it also talks about the brewery. They're calling it a brewery for, for sake. Yeah. yeah. Um, which makes sense, I guess. There's a lot of stuff involved there. Um, it's, a, it's a brewery that makes rice wine. Yeah. Yeah. And rice wine, there's a lot of back and forth on whether that's yeah. an appropriate, because wine technically has yes, to have right. a fruit mm-hmm. and right. available sugars. Whereas and that's not really the case. Reality, but yeah. you're making a product that's coming in around wine ABV Maybe. and served very similarly. So that's kind of the an un, un, uh, carbonated. It, it's, it's much easier for me to compare this to wine. Yeah, like a, like a like a like a white wine. Yeah, yeah. it is to like any kind of spirit. Yeah, yeah. For me, it all these sakes that I've had have had a. I, I get a lot of the, uh, and I haven't had a lot. Like uh, basically, today's doubled the amount of sakes that I've had in my life. <laughs> so, um, actually, probably tripled. Actually, um, so that being said, I get a lot of the same notes out of vodka that I get mm. out of sake. That makes sense. I can see that. And so there's some of the kind of the dusty dryness that I get in vodka, that alcohol dustiness um, that I'm getting out of some of these sakes. That said, um, we are on our fourth sake, and I would say for me it's probably the second best sake of the day um, for me. And this one is the Horan by Gek Kek Khan. Gek Kek Khan. Kek Khan. Sure. Gek Khan. Um, and they're, again, one of the main uh, sake producers that you're going to see putting out sakes on most store shelves. Um, this is their ultra-premium Junmai Dajingo. Sorry, Daijingo. Um, Jinjo. Daijingo. It's the same word as the other one, just with yep. Dai in front of it. <laughs> and this one is, for me, I like the traditional Ginjo better than the Daijingo. Um this one that we had brought before it. See, I liked the other one, uh, but I've actually enjoyed this one more uh, because it's got a little bit lighter flavor to it. It is. Uh, and it's, it's got a, there's a hint of like kind of, kind of sweetness, I guess a little bit more than the other one. Uh, the other one was just so dry that it, mm. it didn't, didn't land well in my palate. Gotcha. Uh, but this one, this one's a little bit easier to drink. I still have that weird, almost watery quality to everything. Yeah. Um, which is just strange for me when I'm drinking and I'm not drinking water. <laughs> it seems uh, odd because it is so. It looks like it's very thin. Yeah, it's it's like I'm drinking alcohol flavored water. Like <laughs> like you've had an alcohol, but the ice is melted in it. Yeah. Mm. It's like someone made me a smoothie of alcohol. <laughs> You just let it sit around. Yeah, uh, we are pairing it today with a, a nice platter of sushi, though. Um, you don't have to drink sake with sushi, but if you're going to, I mean, why I, not? Right? Yeah. I'm a little more intrigued by that now. Like you usually see that uh, like a lot of sushi bars and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. That and now I'm a little more interested in like combining those two. The few mm. times I've had sake have been when I've been at like, a, a sushi restaurant. Yeah, and you know you want to just kind of go, you know. Win in Rome, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very much the the case. Two Japanese products together. 
So that's mm. why fried chicken goes so well with bourbon. <laughs> but then yeah. again, everything goes, goes well, well with bourbon. Bourbon. Uh, <sighs> bourbon and chicken and waffles. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, so that, this is a very interesting episode. Like there was a lot of stuff I did, had no idea about. <laughs> I feel like we could revisit this at some point and talk about some of the the individual stuff more. But probably mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a huge huge uh kind of thing huge yeah it's it's a huge it's a country's entire well there's there's even soju that goes beyond this where you take this and distill it out and you make a completely new product which we still have to cover that at some point too like yeah for something completely different (laughs) (laughs) so that may be our next non non uh beer and not bourbon related topic. Oh yeah. Yeah, uh M Beam in the chat. Sake hangover flashback. Yeah, that's what uh that's what the Soju episode will be. We have to get to that though, because uh we hadn't heard of it until Amos brought it up. So uh the Soju. Well at least I hadn't. Yeah. I think we've heard of it because it was on um Zane Lamprey's oh, three, was it on three sheets? sheets show. Okay, and they would they would do soju, soju bombs. Okay, that was. Ah. It's just we it, never were into. Hey, I want to try drinking that at that point. Right. It was all about the Guinness. I think during that part of our lives. <laughs> yeah, that was that was the very beginning for us. <laughs> all right. Well. I think that about does it for this one. I think it does. Okay. Well, you can visit us at haveadrinkshow.com for useful links and for info about us. We may actually put up some of these infographics. I don't know if Brittany wants to or not, but we might do that. Yeah, also, fun. look for Have a Drink Show on social media, twitch.tv, and YouTubes. Don't forget, you can tell us your favorite drink, ask a question, or just leave some general feedback. You can use the email address feedback at haveadrinkshow.com. You can also use the feedback page on the website. Uh, you can... You know, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook. Uh, you know, we could ask you questions if you're in our Discord. Hmm. Exactly. Uh, I did that earlier this week. In fact, I'm going to prompt a question. If anyone wants to email in and hasn't seen the, uh, didn't see it in the Discord or maybe just missed it, what would you do if a genie granted you a wish and you now have control of Anheuser-Busch? <laughs> if you have control of AB and Bev. What do you do? Do you sit back and roll in the profits? Do you try to make it a force for good? What What do you do? I'd like to hear it. All right. And if you have a complaint you'd like to register with us about our butchering of the Japanese language, go ahead and send that to the feedback yeah. email that we just mentioned. And all joking and fun aside, we'd like to remind everyone to please drink responsibly. Uber, Lyft, they're not that expensive. Come on, guys. You know, I don't think we did as bad, as bad on the pronunciations on this one as we did, like, German and, and Look, Polish some, and crap like that. Some of the ones where there's some really weird Dutch words. We, yeah. we really butchered those. I, f- I feel like we did better on this one. A lot of these were like, oh, it's more or less said how it's spelled. Okay, someone's, cool. <laughs> someone's going to let us know. We hope. We well, just... just from looking it up, but yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so check us out again next Saturday for our next episode. And remember to check out patreon.com slash have a drink show. Once again, I'm Brittany Lee Walker. I'm Justin Frazier. I'm Christopher Walker. And I'm Casey Price. We'll see you next time. <laughs> Bye, guys.
Employment Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>